Um, I'm glad that you're here, and I'm glad that I'm here. I'm glad that we made it together. Um, today, we are going to jump into Leviticus chapter 19. Uh, for some of you who may be wondering, is Pastor going to preach on Leviticus until the end of the world? No. Uh, only a few more weeks until we're done with Leviticus. Uh, you can say amen, but everybody will look at you and judge you for that. So don't do that. Um, today we're going to highlight some things in Leviticus chapter 19. And then we've got just a few more weeks uh, where we'll talk about the feasts that show up later in the book of Leviticus and God's calendar. Um, his calendar is different than ours. His timing is different than ours. Can somebody say amen, right? Well, two weeks ago in my last message to you, um, I shared something with you that might have been a challenge for you to wrap your mind around, but it's something really good for us to be reminded of, and that is this. We live in a world full of people with opinions. We have our own. How many of you know an opinionated person? I'm not looking at my wife when she raises her hand. Okay, uh, we live in a world full of opinionated people, right? And we live in a world that has a lot of, of cultural pressure. There is this idea that if you don't see it my way, you're not going to be my friend. I'm going to judge you. There's political correctness. If you say something wrong that I think is wrong, I'm going to, you know, publicly assassinate your character, all of those kinds of things. So what we said two weeks ago is this. We must not allow today's cultural norms to determine our morality, We've got something for that. It's a tool in your hand. If you have a device in your hand, you can use your Bible on your phone. But the tool in your hand is the Bible. God gave us his word, which is timeless. And listen to me, it transcends all cultures and all times. Just because you do it a certain way, wherever that place is, and you've done it that way because that's all you know, when you're confronted with the word of God, Change must happen in order for the word of God to transform you. So regardless of what your cultural heritage is, regardless of the world around us, we've got to allow God's word to be the standard for our morality. So it's my job to look at God's word and to try to equip you to what the Bible says in Ephesians is to do the work of the ministry. Some people get that backwards. They think it's pastor's job to do all of the ministry. That's not what the Bible says. So you should read Ephesians. All throughout there, we understand that it is not just the pastor, the prophet, the teacher's job to do the ministry. It is their job to equip you, to give you the tools you need to be able to live the life God's called you to live and be able to make a change in this world, to be able to be the light in the darkness. I can't be the light in the darkness where you work because I don't work there. So I've got to empower you through the word of God to be able to live the life God wants you to live. So today, as we look at Leviticus 19, I want to tell you like at the start, it kind of reminds me of Proverbs. If you've ever read through Proverbs, you can read two verses that are about the same thing, and then the next verse changes it completely, and it's about something else. Well, this kind of reminds me of that. Each section is unique, and actually, this chapter is very similar to Exodus chapter 20. That's where we find the Ten Commandments. So, 
I was thinking I would offer $20 today to anybody who could recite in order the Ten Commandments. But then I thought, <laughs> I got people running from the back to come up to get the... Uh, but, <laughs> but then I thought, you know what? They all know the Ten Commandments and in order. I would be out of money. Thank you, Don, for raising your hand because I have no doubt you could actually do it. Um, <laughs> thank you. But as we look at this today, we're going to look at something that's very similar. So go with me in your Bibles to Leviticus chapter 9. 19. We'll have the verses for you on the screen as well. And today we're going to talk about a couple different things that are not really interrelated to each other. So I don't have a title to this message outside of Leviticus 19, but we do have some topics we'll cover. Let's begin in verse one. It says this, and the Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to all the congregation of the people of Israel and say to them, you shall be holy for I, the Lord, your God am holy. Stop there for just a minute and look up. We've said that Leviticus 17 to 26 is called the holiness code, where these words, that phrase appears several times throughout the passages. The understanding is that if we are God's kids, we ought to look like him. We ought to sound like him. We ought to behave like him. We ought to do the things that he wants us to do. Continue verse three. Every one of you shall revere his mother. Everybody say mother. mother. And his father, and you shall keep my Sabbaths. I am the Lord your God. Do not turn to idols or make for yourselves any gods of cast metal. I am the Lord your God. If you notice with me in verse three, it talks there and lists mom first in this passage which is really interesting if you're thinking in biblical terms, they lived in what we would call a patriarchal society. So mom would not get mentioned first normally, dad would. And so there was this understanding and that's how we list them in the 10 commandments in Exodus chapter 20. It's listed honor thy father and thy mother. The point is that each parent is on the same level in terms of honor and somebody say amen to avoid punishment um, and to please God, okay? Both parents are on the same level. No one could get away in that culture with disrespecting their dad, but now Leviticus is showing us you can't disrespect your mother either. She's listed in the primary position. Now there's possibility that, you know, the father of a family has died and the mom needs to be mentioned, but having that said, it's clear that mom holds the same place of respect and honor, so when we think about scripture and when we read through scripture, we are to read it with our eyes wide open and we're to dig deep into places like that and try to figure out why is it listed differently? Okay, that makes sense. Okay, wow, mom and dad both. So let's continue. Sabbath is mentioned again. I wanna say this and you need to hear me. God wants you, college students, as you're coming back from a summer that was busy and short, God wants you to rest. He actually designed you to rest. He actually instituted a law, a permanent setup inside of his kingdom called Sabbath. And that is the understanding of spending time to rest and recharge, but also to spiritually recharge, to honor and to worship God, to set aside time and make God and his family a priority. 
If you have no plans tonight at five o'clock, Sandra Inman, will you wave your hand? If you have no plans tonight at Sandra's house, it's been posted on Facebook. We're going to have a pizza party. Everybody's welcome. Kids too. We're going to have a crazy good fun time. We're going to order pizza, bring some sodas or some cookies or whatever you want to add to it, but we'll have pizza there. That's an opportunity for us to be together as the family. He didn't wire you to work nonstop. I'm preaching this to myself (laughs) because I have that sort of innate in me that I want to always be doing something and be busy and be productive. But God designed us to be able to rest. Literally nothing on our planet, even the machines that we build, cannot run continuously without maintenance and downtime. They've got to have that. Even in a factory that puts out thousands of pieces of equipment or whatever it may be, those machines have to have times of downtime. If they don't, then breakdowns happen. So that happens in our own life. And a lot of us can look at the Ten Commandments and we could say, well, I I do a decent job at honoring my mother and father or I did when I was a kid and now that they're old or they're gone or whatever, it's different. Or I do this and I haven't killed anybody and it's been a really long time since I stole something and it's a this and and we can go through that litany or that list, but somehow we glaze right over the thing that says, keep my Sabbath holy. So the question is this, what consequences do we face in our life when we fail to rest? Is your body showing signs of exhaustion and wear and tear? I know you ladies like those miracle eye creams that reduce and remove wrinkles and all that stuff. Here's the deal. All of us are showing signs of wear and tear. Are you constantly emotionally on edge? Maybe you're lacking rest in your life. (laughs) Is your marriage suffering? Is your family suffering? There are consequences in our life when we don't find time and dedicate it, not just to rest and rest for rest's sake, but to rest and to recharge and let God pour back in what we've lost. Because we as people leak We leak love, we leak forgiveness, we leak grace. All of that stuff has to be poured back in. And it can be poured back in the moment you're with the family of God, the moment you're in the presence of God, the moment that you lift your voice in song, even though you're going through a struggle, the moment that you listen to the word of God and let it soak into your heart, that's the moment that God can charge you up. Some of us are lacking that. So make plans. Here's the first application of the message. Make plans this week to rest. It's my first week back to school. Monday morning, all the students arrive. My wife's first week back to school. We've been working to prep our classrooms and curriculums and all that stuff. There are others in here too. I have to dedicate and find some time where I'm going to rest. I was talking to somebody recently and they said, you know what? My life is just too busy. I've got to cut some stuff out. I've decided outside of work and school, I'm only going to do two things per week. What two things those are, I get to decide. They're not all the same, but I'm only going to do two other commitments because I just can't. You've got to make that healthy decision for you. And by all means, spend time with God during that rest time. So verse four states again, something that we would see as a cornerstone commandment. It's the capital, the one and only that matters above all the rest. It says this in verse four, nothing else should be worshiped, but God and him alone. 
It's interesting that Sabbath and worship of God and him alone are connected because here when we see that and we understand it, if we're not resting, we're probably worshiping or elevating something in priority that's taking God's spot. So even as a college student with the classes and the tribes and the clubs and the this and the that, find time to rest and make sure that nothing gets elevated to the place of worship besides God and him alone. Okay, verse five through eight, we're going to skip them. They talk about peace offerings, and we've talked about that in our series already. We've already covered it. But let's look at verse nine and 10. It says this, when you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap your field right up to its edge, neither shall you gather the gleanings after your harvest, and you shall not strip your vineyard bare, neither shall you gather the fallen grapes of your vineyard. You shall leave them for the poor and for the sojourner. I am the Lord your God. The understanding that we have in this passage is that the people of God have always been known for their kindness. And so God actually stipulates to those and everyone was living in an agricultural setting. Us these days in this room, we could have people in the medical field, the educational realm, all different types of things. But back then, everybody had a farm and a piece of property and a garden and all of that they needed to make sure that they left some stuff behind for the poor and for the sojourner, for the person who's traveling, who's out of money, for the poor who lost their job or doesn't have an income. So they were not to go through and harvest everything and then go look back down the rows and see, oh, there's some grapes that have fallen. Let's take them all. No, they were to actually leave them for those people. This is kindness commanded. Listen to me. Not to those that you know and love. Because you don't need to be commanded to do something like that. You already do it and you do it well. Our church does it well. When somebody has an issue in their life or they've come out of surgery or they have some, uh, some kind of crisis or chaos, these ladies in our church start a Facebook message thing. Who's going to bring meals? Who's going to do that? We do that because it's, it comes natural to us to bless and to be a blessing to those who we know and we love. But God is actually making a point here, which I think we could apply to our lives. I could apply it to the stupid drivers that I don't know and I don't love. Oh, I'm sorry. Wait, I'm in church. I should stop talking like that. I could apply it to people in my life um, because it's easy to show kindness to those that we know and love. But here we've got to understand God is wanting us to show kindness to those that we don't know. And that we haven't yet had an opportunity to love to the poor and to the traveler. Verse 12 says this, you shall not swear by my name falsely and so profane the name of your God. I am the Lord. Okay, I'm not going to say the phrase, but I'll use the initials. This is not the understanding of the common swear phrase that you have heard GD. This is not what the Bible is talking about. The Bible is talking about something deeper. It's not about foul language in this passage. The Bible does warn about that in other places. But what it's talking about when it says, don't take my name or swear by my name falsely, it's saying don't bring God into a covenant or commitment that you don't intend to keep. 
Back in those days, to make it sound really serious, they could say, I swear by God, the God of heaven and earth, that I will leave your land and keep your blah, 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 and whatever. And they'd make an agreement or a covenant. But God is warning them here, don't bring me into that if you even have an inkling that you're not going to keep up your end of the bargain. Why? Because God's name is to be praised. It's not to be dragged through the mud because somebody forgot a part of their commitment and then other people have a shaded view of who God is. You guys have seen it. There are TV preachers and other people that have fallen from grace, the grace of people and also the grace of God because of sins they've committed and they tarnish the name of God. Other people experience that and see that through their perspective and however they see it, we don't have control over. But God says, don't you put my name behind it unless it's awesome, excellent, beneficial, and unless you're going to keep it up. Amen? So this is really important for us to understand that if we attach our God's name to it, it better be done right, well, and in order. If something bad were to happen, God's name gets dragged through the mud and dishonored. And this is not what God's name should, not what should happen, rather, to God's name. In verse 14, go there with me if you want to look there. In verse 14, God tells the people not to discriminate based on handicaps. This is really interesting to me because it doesn't show up anywhere else in Scripture. Like this, it doesn't show up anywhere else in scripture. So before the um, ADA, the Americans with Disabilities Act, and they had to start putting handicap ramps, our building is handicap accessible, all of that stuff. Before all of that stuff, God cornered the market on this and said, don't discriminate based on handicap. So don't mistreat or prey on the blind or the deaf, okay? Or we could say any handicap for that matter. So what's the point here? God continues to say, essentially, we could use this phrase, love your neighbor. It doesn't matter if they're poor and coming through, they should have some food. It doesn't matter if they're handicapped. Whatever it is, you should love others. In fact, in Romans chapter 13, I might be getting ahead of myself because I'm in Leviticus, but Romans chapter 13 says, essentially, that the laws of God could be summed up with that, that we are to love our neighbor as ourself. That love is the fulfillment of God's laws. Verse 15 says something interesting. It says, don't be partial to the poor. (laughs) You think, wait a second, huh? Verse 15, you shall do no injustice in court. You shall not be partial to the poor or defer to the great, but in righteousness shall you judge your neighbor. So it's saying to us that we shouldn't judge differently simply as a result of our heartstrings being pulled on because they're poor, they're down, and they're out. We also should not accept a bribe and and judge poorly in the direction of those who are wealthy or great because we shouldn't treat them any differently. We should treat all people fairly. In order for true justice to be executed, we must judge righteously and without bias. How many of you have ever felt that someone held a bias against you? Raise your hand high. Okay. Yeah. So we know what that feels like. God's word is helping us see that we should not be the people who caused that to happen in others. Verse 16 warns against slander. 
Church, you have got to listen to me. Look up at me for just a second. Look here on the screen. Verse 16, you shall not go around as a slanderer among your people, and you shall not stand up against the life of your neighbor. I am the Lord. In other places throughout scripture, if you'll leave that verse on the screen, in other places throughout scripture, God literally says there are things that he hates, and it's said about him. One of the things that he hates is gossip and slander. If it's not your story to tell, don't tell it. My wife said, right. Anybody else? If it's not your story to tell, don't tell it. Because that's gossip. Here's the deal, and I really felt like God helped me understand this in a new light this week. I wrote this down. I haven't read it in other places worded like this, but I put here, remember the picture you paint of others is a permanent one. So if it's not yours to talk about, then don't talk about it. When tempted, use the golden rule. Do unto others as you would have them do to you. Maybe you do know all the details of the story. Maybe the other people don't. Maybe there is, well, but I just told them because they're blah, blah. No, 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 no. We can find a million excuses to remain in a place of gossip and slander, but that is not okay. And it even invades the church. This isn't me on a soapbox because I feel like somebody's gossiping about somebody else in the church. I am telling you, we ought to kill it at the door before it gets here. You ought to kill it at the door of your heart. I had somebody, teachers gossip a lot. That sounds like gossip, don't it? I didn't name a name though, all right? But teachers do because they talk about the student. Oh, you don't know about little Johnny. He, oh, good luck with him this year because of, and they give you all the insight, okay? And I had someone this week attempt to gossip and share something with me. And I said, you know what? Actually, they said, have you heard? And I said, no, I haven't. And it's okay. I'm okay. Now, I'm not telling you that because I feel like I'm holier than thou. I'm telling you because I'm, I, I succeeded this week in one area of my life. Okay? Celebrate with me. Um, I succeeded in this because I said, no, you know what? Actually, I wasn't part of that. I don't know the details. I don't need to know them. What do I do with it? What am I going to be led to do with that information? I'm going to have a different perspective. I'm going to have my heart probably turned against that person. I'm not going to say, you know what? Will you hold your, your thought for just one second? Let's go get that person. Let's bring them together and get the full story from both sides. That's probably really, really revolutionary. I wouldn't be doing that. So I just said, hey, stop. My ears don't need this because I'm going to start worrying about it. I'm going to start concerning myself with it. Church, listen to me. Quit. <laughs> Quit. For goodness sake, discipline your tongue. James 3 tells us that the tongue is a restless evil, even mine, even yours. It's a restless evil full of deadly poison. I was talking to a pastor friend of mine this week, and we were talking about something, and he said he was at a visitation, uh, not a hospital visitation, but an in-home visit for a gentleman with a gentleman for three hours. And I thought, oh, good night, what is this guy dealing with? Like that's a, it's a long home visit to be praying with somebody or whatever. Turns out it was a counseling session. Something was going on in that gentleman's life. And you know what the pastor said? He said, this man has been so hurt by words spoken about him. 
and he needs he needs the understanding of what scripture says about forgiving others even if you can't talk to them even if they're dead even if they're like he needed to walk him through all of this and we started to talk about that children's rhyme from the mid 1800s and if i say the first word i guarantee you you can finish it sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. That is a lie, and it's hogwash, as my grandpa would say. It's garbage. It's not true. People are losing their jobs today because of a word they said. Okay? People are getting all up in their feelings because of words that are said. We should be careful with the words that we say Words have been the death of many men, women, and children. I know someone who is confiding in me recently, talking about someone that they know whose father is verbally abusive. And I began to think, you know, words are the destruction of whole societies. And words can really, really, really cause the death of someone's heart. In every generation since Adam, words have been an issue. How many of you have ever spoken a word that you shouldn't have spoken? Not, not saying foul language, but a word in anger or a word in anything like that. We've all done that. We've all been the recipient of that. We have to be careful. Your pastor's preaching to himself today. Amen. So I'll amen it. We've got to be careful with our words. All right, let's hit the last three big ideas in chapter 19. You're going to love this, guys, because it talks about mixing yarn. It talks about necromancy, which is talking to the dead. And it talks about immigration. So this is going to be awesome. Um, chapter 19, uh, verse 19 and following, it gives some prohibitions for mixing things. Okay, look up at me for just a second. If you've ever read this passage before or heard someone talk about it, you can take that verse off the screen if you don't mind, Mandy. Uh, if, and just, yeah, we're good. If you've ever heard anybody talk about this or if you've ever read through this, you might have thought, wow, is it a sin for me to have like a poly blend t-shirt? Okay, uh, something that has two blended materials. So let me explain to you what the understanding in scripture here is. The idea here is that God's house, we call that sacred space, the tabernacle, the temple, all of those things that we understand in the Old Testament, they had some things that had mixed materials that had been meshed together. There was a priestly robe that had a blue thread through the garment. The whole garment wasn't blue, but it had a blue thread through the garment. It signified royalty. It set them apart. So granny couldn't go to the tabernacle and see the priest and then go, oh, that's beautiful. I'm going to go home and make a bonnet for my you know, grandbaby and do the same thing. They couldn't copy the pattern, and it kind of would come off seeming like everybody else was humdrum. The common folk dressed differently than the people in God's presence. And there was a reason. God wanted them to see there was a separation. It's different when you come here and when you're in my house and in my presence than it is when you're out there. So it helps delineate some boundaries of what belonged to God's house and what was common. There was a marked and intentional distinction between sacred space and everyday life. 
Some people still feel like that. They want to wear their three-piece suit, even though they wear, you know, maybe overalls during the week to work out on a farm. They want to wear a three-piece suit to church because they want to make a distinction. And I'm okay with that. I'm not saying that's bad or wrong. You see me how you see me any day of the week. I'm dressed like this, and we're pretty casual around here. The point of it in this passage of scripture is for those people to understand God lives in a place that's different than the place you live in. And when you come to him, there should be an expectation of his presence. And when we're there, things are different. It still happens today. When you came in this room today and when we were worshiping and singing songs, something happens in this room differently when you hear the voices, no matter how good or how bad they are. Don't look at your neighbor. Um, Something different happens than when you're just listening to Good Good Father on the radio for the thousandth time, okay? Something different in this room because the presence of people who are the people of God are joined together. Something interesting that you might want to dig into, I'm not going to go into very far, but that is the things inside of the house of God were different too. In fact, since he's the creator, he's the only one who has the power of mixing things. So the cherubim that sit above the Ark of the Covenant, they look like they are beings that are made only by God, that cannot reproduce, and they've got mixed natures. When you think about the images that the prophets speak all the way throughout scripture, you see them having imagery of a man's head on a horse's body with hooves like a cow or whatever it may be. When you even go into Revelation, there's some wacky stuff in Revelation. There's some creatures around the throne room of God that have wings and eyes lining their wings. God is the only one who can mix things like that. Otherwise, there's a natural created order he put in Genesis that says you reproduce after your own kind. So there was this understanding for those people in that way. Now, verse 31, we're going to jump apart to verse 31. It says this, do not turn to mediums or necromancers. Do not seek them out. And so make yourselves unclean by them. I am the Lord, your God. Mediums and necromancers, these are not words we would use in everyday language today, but I'll tell you, basically what it is, is it's those who commune with the spiritual realm, whether they're dead people or whether they're spirits outside of God. So God is giving in his word this this prohibition to people. It's a no-no to consult or commune with the spirits in the spirit realm outside of God. Scripture, this is kind of fascinating to me. It doesn't say that's nonsense. It doesn't say it's not real or not possible. It says don't do it. So you say, Pastor, I am dying to hear the application of this. There's a very real spirit realm God is not the only one who lives in the spirit realm. Let that sink in for just a moment. I didn't say there are things that live in God's presence that shouldn't be there. Understand what I'm saying. There are spiritual beings. There are powers and forces. There are demons. There are all types of activity in the spirit realm that we are not to consult with or get involved in. In 1 Samuel chapter 28, Saul is feeling hopeless because the Philistines are kicking his tail. 
they are winning every battle against the Israelites and Saul does not understand what's going on. He can't get an answer. So it says in his own words, he says, God has turned away from me and answers me no more, either by the prophets or by dreams. So what does he do? He consults a medium. Verse 11, it tells us the story about this medium that he seeks out in the middle of the night. It says, then the woman said, whom shall I bring up for you? He said, bring up Samuel for me. You should know Samuel's been dead. That's why he's talking to the medium. Verse 12, when the woman saw Samuel, she cried out with a loud voice. Yeah, if you saw a dead person, (laughs) I'd cry out with a louder voice than just loud, okay? I'd lose my mind. And the woman said to Saul, why have you deceived me? You are Saul. So Saul puts in a, a righteous prohibition in the kingdom and says, all the mediums, all the necromancers, those who seek and consult the dead spirits, all of you out of here. This is God's kingdom. He's making a righteous rule. But now when it's convenient, he's, he's hiding in the middle of the night with some men, going to go find one of these people to help him talk to Samuel from beyond the grave. The Bible says it and says it's real. So verse 13, the king said to her, don't be afraid. What do you see? And the woman said to Saul, I see a God. That's a small G. It would be the understanding of a spiritual being, okay? Coming up out of the earth. It was physical enough for her to see. Verse 14, he said to her, what is his appearance? Like, what, hey, which, what does he look like? She said, it's an old man coming up and he's wrapped in a robe. And Saul goes, well, that must be Samuel. He says, he knew it was Samuel and he bowed his face to the ground and he paid homage. Then Samuel said to Saul, why have you disturbed me by bringing me up? I'm guessing Samuel didn't want to come back. (laughs) Right? I'd be like, why would you? Um, So he's basically like, why are you bothering me? Like, why are you bringing me up? Saul knew that it was Samuel. He bowed his face. Then he says, why have you disturbed me by bringing me up? This physical being that she saw, he sees two people. You'll find in that passage, there are men of Saul's with him that all see, and they hear the voice of Samuel. Let that sink in for just a minute. It's kind of cool but he was going about it all wrong. Saul had stopped hearing the voice of God. And so now, if you read later in the passage, the dead prophet from the grave is speaking to him and telling him, you got it wrong before, and that's why God is judging you, and you're still doing wrong because you called me up. How does this apply to my life today? Don't seek out human wisdom and forsake God's wisdom. If you can't hear him, the problem's not with his voice. The problem's with your ear. (laughs) The reason Saul could no longer hear God's voice is because he was living in disobedience and God himself chose to stop speaking to him. 
That's a powerful thought. I've shared this with other people before when they say, I just can't, I don't know God's direction. I just don't know what to do. I've been praying and asking him, but he hasn't given me an answer. And this is what I tell them. Go back to the last thing he said to do and check your heart and your life to see if you've obeyed. Because chances are the only thing that stands ever between you and God outside of sin, all of it, is disobedience. Not obeying what he's already spoken to us. So if we modernize this today, we would say this. I would say this very clearly from the platform. Don't play with a Ouija board. Don't read a horoscope in the newspaper. Don't trust a fortune cookie. I know it's funny and silly and whatever. Some people are pretty hardcore against them. I open them. My kids eat the fortune cookie. I look at it and just laugh. It's, I don't model my life by something that comes out outside of the word of God. Does that make sense? So all of those demote and demean God's rightful place in our lives because he's the one who holds our future. He's the one that knows the amount of days we've got on this earth. He knows what tragedy or what victory lies on the other side. He is the one who's in charge. So inventory your life. Are you obeying him? Is there an area of your life where you're not obeying him, where you're choosing to disobey him? That's why I tell you as your pastor, get in the word of God, because you're responsible for what you know. And once you know the truth, the truth can set you free with God's power and strength. He'll guide you and help you in freedom. But you've got to know how to obey him and what to obey him in. Okay, last thing. Worship team, come come join me. The last thing is this, immigration. Now, I know you're like, wow, pastor, this is such a wacky message. But it's covering the topics that are important, these highlights that are in this, this passage. A lot is being said these days about the Bible and immigration. There are people on either side of the aisle, we would call them politically, okay, who are claiming or touting the Bible as their reference and their reason for taking their approach to certain things. But my job is to not tell you what I think. My job is to tell you what God says and to help you understand what his word says. So I want you to just buckle in just for two or three more minutes so that we can explain this. Verse 33 of that same chapter says this, When a stranger sojourns with you in your land, you shall not do him wrong. This word wrong would be harm, injustice, uh, betrayal, any of those things. Verse 34 says, you shall treat the stranger who sojourns with you as the native among you, and you shall love him as yourself. For you were strangers in the land of Egypt. I am the Lord, your God. So here's a few things that we need to realize if we're going to look at the Bible and immigration together. The first is this, and this is really important. You can talk about it at the water cooler this week with your coworkers. In ancient times, they didn't have hard and fast borders to their nations much like we do today, at all like we do today. They lived regionally and they lived in vast empires, which included cities, and that was the easy part, but it didn't always include the countryside and the lands outside of that. It was all pretty open. So that's the first thing. Our context today is very different from the Bible's context. The second difference is there's a difference between immigrants and refugees. 
Generally speaking, immigrants are those who are choosing to relocate to pursue a better life. Refugees would be those who have been forced to leave their homeland as a result of political, religious, or government-instituted persecution. So immigrants are choosing to leave their home to pursue a better life. Refugees are choosing to go or maybe being kicked out because of political or religious or government problems. So there's a difference between how we should handle immigrants and refugees according to the laws of our land. The third thing that's really important is that scripture is very clear that we should always treat all humanity with kindness, with dignity, Scripture declares that we should obey the human laws that are set forth by established governments, but that we are to always treat others and love others as our neighbor. Romans chapter 13, verse one to three says this, let every person be subject to the governing authorities for there is no authority except from God. I want you to hear me. For there is no authority except from God And those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed. And those who resist will incur judgment. The first part of verse 3 says, For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. I had a friend pull me over this week blue lighted me and I thought to myself I got really nervous I was like wait I was doing I think it was only like four miles over the speed limit well he blue lighted me and then pulled up beside me and said hey pastor how you been doing and I thought to myself oh thank God here's the thing my mom would say she still says it today if you ain't sinning you ain't got no reason to worry all right you can take that put it on Twitter keep it for yourself if you're, if you're doing right, you shouldn't have to worry. But here's something really interesting, and I, I beg you to read Scripture and to see it for what it is. Romans 13, it is not talking about, we're not talking about tyrants and those like Hitler and Stalin who, did, who massacred people and did something that was morally apprehensive to God. We're not talking about those. God is saying generally all authority is given because those that exist have been instituted by God. So we've got to understand this in scripture and in our life today. The fourth thing, there's only five. The fourth is we have a moral obligation to care for both immigrants and refugees in humane ways that maintain their dignity. I know a lot has been said about ripping families apart and and all of the different things that you hear about on the news. The truth of the matter is, is whether they got here the right way or the wrong way, when they're here, we're to treat them with humanely, we should say humanely or with dignity. When they break their laws, our laws, we should be able to, according to scripture, cause justice to come and happen. Number five is this, we have a right to enforce our laws and our borders. So, Your pastor is not a politician. I am not making a political statement on either side of the aisle today. I am telling you God's word says we're to treat everybody with love, with kindness, with respect. And yeah, it's a messy world. And yes, we live in a different time and different place than we did before. But God has a desire that all people would know him. So maybe instead of being all hot and bothered about the hot topic of the day, You ought to check your heart today and see when is the last time you were the light in your neighborhood. 
When's the last time you actually talked about church with a friend? Talked about what Jesus did to transform your life at the water cooler? That's the kind of stuff we're to be doing and modeling because that is when we are truly lighting up our world for Christ. So stand with me today. I want you to pray with me. I'm gonna pray with you just a simple phrase and we, we've done it regularly around here. It is this thought, Holy Spirit, what are you saying to me? Now, I, I don't think he's telling you to go home today and throw out your polyester blend clothing, okay? I don't know that he's calling you to be a politician or to fix the immigration crisis. I don't know, but I do know this. I know that the Holy Spirit probably spoke to some of us about gossip, about loving our neighbor, about obedience and hearing the voice of God. I want you right where you are to just close your eyes. I wanna pray that the Holy Spirit would help you take the step that's necessary for whatever it is he spoke to your heart in this message. Holy Spirit, I pray today that as you've spoken to our hearts already, you would call us to action. Help us today to course correct in the areas of our life that are needful. Because we know that your word is timeless and that you are timeless. So today, as we've absorbed a lot from this one chapter, I pray that you would help us to apply it to our lives. In Jesus' name. Now the worship team is just gonna play for like 30 seconds. If you wanna make a commitment to the Lord for something regarding the message, or maybe you just wanna pray because you came in with a heavy heart, I wanna encourage you to do that. Don't sing the words to the song. Just make a private place of prayer right where you are. Whisper, and you don't have to have the right words. I love that about God. You can tell him that you're mad, even if it's at him. He'll listen to you. So today, just take 30 seconds to commit to the Lord about whatever it is that you need to take action with in your own heart as you've taken inventory today. And then in just a moment, the worship team's gonna lead us in this last song as we leave.